today is from the book of Luke, chapter 23, verses 35 to 43. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved himself, let him save. He saved others, let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, well, it's good to be with you. Uh, this morning at the Gateway Church. Uh, for those of you who aren't aware of who I am, my name is Nick Nepper, and over there, where's my wife? She's back over the back there with our children. Uh, it's wonderful for us, my family and my wife, to be here today. Uh, over a decade ago, we were on staff at this church. My wife was, I, I've been saying the first children's pastor, but actually I think you were the second, right? You were number two. But uh, it's, it's wonderful to be here. It feels to us like kind of a full circle day in our lives and in our ministry. Uh, Gateway holds this incredibly special place in our hearts. It was the first place where I chose to go to church as an adult male. And so it meant a lot that, I, that we made that decision. This place formed us in so many ways. Uh, we made a ton of great friends, and uh, we're just so thankful to be back this morning. So thank you. So, since my wife and I have been uh, left Gateway, we've been kind of all over the state of Iowa, pastoring different places, doing different things. Uh, but about a year ago, we felt a call back to Des Moines, uh, and we knew that if we came back to Des Moines, we were going to plant an Anglican church. Now, if that word doesn't mean anything to you, join the club, right? No one really knows in Des Moines what, what I mean when I say that we're planning an Anglican church, in part because there are no Anglican churches here. And so we're kind of breaking new ground. But we're just so thankful to be back. Uh, when I came back, Pastor Kyle and I kind of struck up a quick friendship. On Wednesday, I made him take a cold plunge with me in the Raccoon River. He's a lightweight. Uh, so just, so uh, no, he's just got a little bit less insulation than I do is all. But uh, we're just, again, we're so thankful to be back, and we're excited to be on this journey as a family of starting a new church, and we're, just, uh, we're excited to have friends uh, like you guys here at Gateway. So, all right, today is a good day. It's actually a very special day on the calendar of the Christian year. Today is Christ the King Sunday. Was anybody familiar, aware of that when they walked in the door today? Next week, next week is... November 27th, and it's the first Sunday of Advent. It's the first Sunday of the new Christian year. And if you're unfamiliar with the Christian calendar, or what is often called the liturgical calendar, the, uh, it, this is a way that literally billions of Christians 
all over the world mark time by retelling the story of the gospel through the use of these different seasons, seasons like Advent and Epiphany, Lent, Pentecost, and then ordinary time. You see, Christians believe that the way we live within time matters. Christians believe that the way we live within time matters. And the dates and the holidays we celebrate actually teach us something about the way we are to live and what we are to actually value. The the days and the the way we mark time forms us in a sense. And so uh, we all mark time by observing special days, don't we? We all do this. And different cultures and different nations have different special days on the calendar where they commemorate or celebrate different holidays or days of remembrance. So you could celebrate Labor Day, for instance. Or in just a couple of days, we're going to celebrate Thanksgiving. And all of those holidays and days of remembrance, they tell a story, don't they? And uh, there are also individual days, more, more localized or specific days that we celebrate too. Days like our birthdays or our anniversaries. You see, these special days reinforce a kind of narrative by retelling a story whether they retell a story about the founding of the American continent in Thanksgiving or American independence in the 4th of July or the importance of the worker in Labor Day, or they retell the story of your life, right? Or of your birth at your birthday. They retell the story, if you're a married couple, when you celebrate your anniversary, you retell to yourselves, remind yourselves of the story of the marriage vows that you made to one another. These, These things are important. And because human brains use story to make meaning out of our lives, this is how we kind of make sense of who we are and where we belong in the world, these holidays or these ways of marking time end up reinforcing how we live and what we believe. That's what these days actually do. This is why, for instance, there is a move to turn Columbus Day into Indigenous Peoples Day, right? Because Columbus Day tells one story, and Indigenous Peoples Day tells a different story that I'm sure you're all aware of. Now, the Christian calendar is intended, the point of the Christian calendar, is to remind followers of Jesus that they are, we are, living in a different story. We occupy time differently. Now, uh, for followers of Jesus, The primary story that we are living into is not the story of American independence. It's not the story of our own personal freedom. It's not the story of the value of the worker, as much as those things are fine in their own place. For followers of Jesus, the primary story we are living into is the story of the gospel, the good news. Christians are people who are with the whole of our lives living into the story of the gospel. And the way we mark time helps us to do that. We are called to live into the good news of a crucified and resurrected Messiah, King Jesus. And so to remind us of that fact, Christians every year tell that story afresh and anew by walking through the liturgical calendar. And each year that we retell the story of the gospel by marking time with holidays and feast days, we, uh, with seasons of repentance where we focus on things like fasting or giving things up, and seasons of joy where we focus on service and, and celebration, 
It's this amazing way that we can tell ourselves, remind ourselves of what it is we live for and what has true meaning in this life. I love the liturgical calendar. It gives my life meaning, purpose, direction, focus, and it's, it's a wonderful tool. And today is Christ the King Sunday. And on Christ the King Sunday, we retell the story of the fact that Jesus is king of everything and everyone. Not only that Christ is king of our own individual lives, though I hope that's true for you, we tell the story that Jesus is king over everything. Regardless of our national affiliation or ethnicity, we make the proclamation today that Christ is king. But the question is, what does that mean, right? What does it mean that Christ is king? Because there's a lot of ways that are, a lot of pictures that our minds can kind of latch onto when we say that phrase. What is, what is the phrase Christ is king actually attempting to communicate to us? Why are Christians affirming this statement all over the world right now or whenever they are celebrating it in their time zone? You know how it goes. Now, the question that kind of comes to my mind and the image that might be popping into yours right now is, is that, is Jesus like a kind of distant monarch, right? Is he a kind of medieval ruler sitting on a throne distanced from us in some way? It is what, how, in, in fact, does Jesus's kingship work its way out in our lives? And is the command to obey Jesus or to acknowledge his as king or to pledge our allegiance to Jesus as king just about following a kind of arbitrary list of heavenly rules? Probably come to our minds when we think about the fact that Christ is king. Here's what Paul says in Colossians 1 verse 15. He says, the son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him... All things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. When I read that, I'm always struck by how cosmic that statement is, how big. It sounds like this was penned by an astrophysicist, if I'm being honest with you. Jesus is the king of everything, both invisible and visible, holding all things together. He was before all things, and everything that is was created through him. So he's like dark matter, the weak and strong nuclear force, and the Big Bang kind of all rolled into one being, right? But Paul doesn't stop with the Neil deGrasse Tyson definition of who Jesus is and how he executes his rulership or leadership over the cosmos. Because notice what he says in verse 20. He says in verse 20 that Jesus is also the redeemer, the reconciler of all things. That he is the redeemer and reconciler of all things. Meaning he is the one through whom all of the broken stuff in the world and in our lives gets fixed. Gets kind of knit back together into a whole. So his lordship or his kingliness 
is not just power at a distance. It's not just elemental force out there somewhere. It is also personal. There's a closeness to it, an intimacy, a deep care and concern. It is about what the Gateway Church has from the very beginning, a decade ago when I was on staff here, has been talking about even. The renewal of all things. The flourishing of all peoples. The joy of all creation. And so we need to hold these things together in our minds when we say that Jesus is king. But I just want to point out to you for a second, and I think we can kind of skip over it when we make this grand proclamation that Jesus is king, and we forget the situation that we read, the situation that Paul was in when he made this statement in Colossians. It's crazy considering what Christianity was at the time that Paul made this statement that he made this statement. Christianity was just a teeny, tiny Jewish sect that was really only located around like modern-day Israel or Palestine and up into Turkey. This tiny group of Jesus followers was making an ontological claim that Jesus, a crucified Jewish Messiah, was actually the king of the whole world, which is a spectacular thing to say, isn't it? So spectacular, in fact, that if it is not true, it is only the type of thing that crazy people say, right? You know, about 300-ish years after Paul said this, it would be easier to say that Jesus was king. Culturally, it would be more acceptable. Because the Roman emperor Constantine declared to all of the Roman Empire that they were now Christians. Because that's the type of thing emperors can do. But at the time that Paul wrote the, to the Colossians, it was an outlandish statement. It was outlandish. And when I think about that, I, I think about the fact that I'm kind of more comfortable with the statement that Jesus is king when it sounds outlandish. When it's not wedded to political power like it was when Constantine declared all of the Roman government to be Christian. I think the proclamation that Jesus is king, though it is a political statement, and I think Paul meant it as a political statement, is most powerful and most appropriate when it, was, when it is not wedded with political power. You tracking with me here? Political power has a way of warping the statement, has a way of warping the, the truth that Jesus is king, and using it as a tool to accomplish its own ends. And the king of all of the universe somehow becomes a kind of pawn in a localized political game that we're all playing. And I think part of the power, part of the strength of this statement, and part of what Paul points out in Colossians is that to say that Jesus is king is to put him over and above every kind of political structure or cultural affiliation you or I might have. To say that Jesus is king is to kind of pull uh, the microscope or the Google Earth picture, right? Hit the minus button as many times as possible and zoom out as far as you can. And that is the realm over which Jesus is king. And our political squabblings are nothing in comparison to that. You see, I think this statement that Jesus is king is supposed to sound that outlandish. I think it's supposed to be even that confrontational to our own hearts and minds. But there is a tension inherent in that statement that Jesus is king, isn't there? Do you feel it? 
When I say it this morning, do you feel a little bit of a tension? I do. It's a tension that is actually all over the Bible. It's actually all over our teaching text for today. It is a tension that every follower of Jesus, if she or he is honest with themselves, deals with internally from time to time. And I want to look specifically at our teaching text for today because I think it calls to the fore this tension immediately. And if you're paying attention when, when it was read earlier, you heard that tension. But I just want to read it one more time for us just to call it back to our minds and see if you can kind of pick up on this tension. So beginning in verse 35 of Luke chapter 23, we read this. The people stood watching and the rulers, notice rulers, even sneered at him. They said, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. Do you see the irony that's going on here? Like this, how ironic this passage is? One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. You are the Messiah, save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said. Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. You know, the scene here is probably familiar to you if you've, if you've spent any time in church. But if we're being honest with ourselves, this, this scene, this account of Jesus' crucifixion is quite odd. Why, on Christ the King Sunday, does the lectionary choose this passage to tell us that Jesus is king? The one where he dies. What does it mean that the person who the scriptures routinely assert was executed on a Roman cross is in fact the king of the cosmos. What does that mean? And what does it mean that most of the people who were there could not see who Jesus really was? You see the tension? You see, it is this moment that we hear in Luke's gospel where the most ugly, gruesome, Sinful stuff in the world kind of collides with the most gripping and beautiful and healing thing that ever happened in all of the world. And that creates a kind of dissonance in our hearts, and it can make it hard for us to see who it is that Jesus is. You know, I don't think this is much different than our lives. Because it's hard to see that Jesus is king of our lives when all of the stuff is going down, right? It's hard to come to the realization that there is something else happening in the cosmos when our minds and our hearts are drawn to all of the destruction in the world or all of the sin or all of the famine or all of the political upheaval, right? Is anybody getting ready to watch the World Cup this week? I am, right? That's a bad situation. (laughs) People got killed so that we can watch soccer, right? The world is a broken place, and it would cause us to kind of ask internally, who's king of all of this? Who's in control? And yet in Luke's gospel, we see a picture of Jesus being coronated, crowned. Jesus says of himself, like, when I am lifted up, which is kingly language, all men will be drawn unto me. And the lifting up that he's talking about is the lifting up of the cross. 
And so to be drawn to Jesus is to kind of have to see through the brokenness, the sin, the ugliness of the world, and see that it is in that very place that Christ is most certainly king. I would argue that that reality shows us something. It actually shows us something of the character of God, that God is not one who is kind of distanced, held at arm's length, like we read about in Colossians, but that he is close and he is personal and that there is something of what he is doing in the brutality of that moment as he is hanging there on the cross that communicates something to us about the heart of God and something about the reality of what he wants to do in you and in me. You see, the early Christians did not shy away from this idea either. They didn't shy away from the reality of the cross. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says this, speaking about, to the Corinthians about how he was when he was with them. He says, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Okay. And the writer of the book of Hebrews in Hebrews 12, 2 says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, For the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you hear the the coronation language? Kind of, not juxtaposed, but slammed together with the language of of the cross there. There was something about the cross that put on display both the wrongness and brokenness of the world, as well as the beauty and the lordship of Jesus, all at the same time. And I want to suggest to you this morning that that is what you want. That's what I want, even if we don't know it in the moment. There was an early church father in the early 4th century. It was a guy named Gregory Nanzancius. He goes by a bunch of different names. He was also the archbishop of the church in Constantinople, which means he was like the number one or number two guy in the church at the time. But he was also a trained philosopher, Greek philosopher. And in a letter to a friend of his, he's trying to kind of struggle with the question of why it is that Jesus became a human being. Why did the second person of the the Trinity, the Son, have to incarnate human flesh, right? Have Have to descend from glory and become one of us. Like, what's the point of all of this? Why, does not, why can't the creator of the world just kind of snap his fingers and fix everything? Right? It's a good question to ask. And it's a question that Christians have been thinking about long before we sat here on this beautiful November 20th day when it's hopefully going to get a little warmer than it's been the last couple of days. And St. Gregory says this really interesting thing. He says to his friend, That which is not assumed, he has not healed. That which is not assumed, he, Jesus, has not healed. Meaning, Jesus had to become fully human in order to redeem all of our broken humanity. He actually says, if only half of Adam had fell, then Jesus would have only had to be half human or something like that to redeem the half of us that is broken. But he said, unfortunately, we're completely broken. We're completely sinful, and Jesus needed to become completely one of us in order to meet us in that place. And I think it's a really powerful idea. I think it's an idea that kind of sheds light on what we're talking about this morning. 
Paul even says, Paul takes St. Gregory a step further and in one place says that Jesus became sin, your sin and my sin and the sin of the, the kind of corporate sin of the whole world, in order that our sin might be forgiven. That which is not assumed cannot be healed. It seems that there is a deep truth here about God. It's the God that I believe our hearts actually long for. That this God is so intimate, so personal, so desirous of being closely related to us, that in order to heal and restore and redeem, he wants to be with broken humanity at the depths of our own brokenness. But the irony of this reality is that it can make it difficult for us to believe at times that he is really king. Because we have these faulty conceptions of what a king should do or how, should, how they should execute their rule in the world. Why can't he just like march in like Caesar on a white horse and make everything good and make my life perfect? You know, he's the boss. He can just do it. Why can't he just take this sickness away from me? Why do the people I love have to die? Why do friends and relatives have to get cancer? Like, I can't see through this brokenness to the king. It actually kind of obscures my, my picture. There's an inherent tension there. But if the cross is real, if Jesus is actually king, and that is the way that he showed that he was in fact king, then we can have hope in the midst of our broken situations. We can have hope in the midst of our sin. You see, Jesus, Jesus shows us that the way of the king is the way of the cross. You see, the cross reveals the character of King Jesus to us. This is a God who entered into the depths of our broken situation in order to order our lives and to heal us. He assumed, he takes up in his own body everything that is broken and breaking in the world in order to heal it. And as we know from Scripture, he longs to heal all things. And he will heal all things. But let's make this personal for a moment. It is at this point, at the point of the brokenness of the world, and at the place of our greatest suffering, at the point of the sin that like, controls us at times, that Jesus comes, not as someone who is distant or far off. He comes to us as somebody who is gentle and humble in heart, willing to be with us and, and courageously to even become sin that our sin might not control and dominate our lives. This is, I believe, the king that our hearts actually long for. And it is the kind of king that we can and should give the whole of our lives over to. Do you see the grace of God in passages like this? Like, I just feel the grace of God kind of like radiating from this reality towards us. But the challenge of this passage is the challenge of the Christian life. It is, can you see it? And it is the challenge that this passage brings to the fore, right? 
everyone who is in the vicinity of Jesus as he is being crucified. Nearly no one in this passage can see through the situation that they're in the middle of to come to the reality that the one hanging on the cross that literally has a sign above his head that says king of the Jews is actually the king of the cosmos. They can't see it. But who does see it? Ironically, it's not the powerful. It's not the intelligent. It's a, it's a dying sinner who in that moment is suffering the very same fate that Jesus has suffered, who is able or made able, possibly through what he's experiencing, to see through the brutality of that situation and see that Jesus is king. If the musicians could come up, that'd be great. You guys can get where you need to get. You know, I think this condemned uh, criminal that's hanging next to Jesus and his willingness to admit to himself who it is that was hanging next to him can teach us something about how we can, can and should come to Jesus. How we can and should acknowledge that he is king in our lives. And I think this passage of scripture just kind of hangs a question for us. It hangs it in the air. And the question is, can you see? Can you see like this condemned criminal can see? Can you see through the difficulty that you're facing right now? Can you see through the stain and brokenness of our world? Can you see through your own sin that you carried into this place today? Can you see the king? And can you trust him? That's the question that kind of hangs in the air in this passage. You see, today I think this message is for those of us who need to be reminded of that fact. I'm one of them. You need to be reminded that Jesus is king even when all the momentum of your life is running in the other direction, which happens from time to time. You need to be reminded that Jesus is king when the world we live in is routinely so full of confusion and tragedy. And we need to be reminded that Jesus is our gracious and reconciling king when we feel our own dysfunction and our own sin kind of bubbling up out of our hearts and just getting ready to like wreck stuff in our lives. You see, the invitation this morning is for you to once again, by faith, in humility, acknowledge that Jesus is king. And to have your, all your hopes and all your fears and all your allegiance and all your trust and every sin you've ever committed or will commit be laid at the foot of that cross. To submit the whole of your life afresh to his leadership and leading. This is what it means to say that Jesus is king. And I promise that when you do that, you will find that the same arms of grace that were flung wide on the cross are flung wide to embrace you. Not with condemnation or with fear, not with judgment, but just like pure, unadulterated, 100% Colombian grace, right? Just grace through and through. To confess that Jesus is king 
is to come to the feet of the God that we've always longed for, but didn't know we longed for.